Well, Catalyst, welcome again to, uh, to Catalyst. We are honored that you would be here. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, or you can find your Bible app and scroll there. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Beginnings matter. Beginnings matter. If it's the beginning of a musical piece, then they try to, the, the musician hooks your attention and wants to grab your uh, uh, affections because you've only got a moment because beginnings matter. When it's the beginning of a movie or a Netflix original, they've only got really about 10 seconds, right, before we think, ah, do I want to watch this or do I just want to rewatch Parks and Rec? You know, I, we're, we're, all, we're all measuring beginnings matter. When it comes to the uh, competition, Petitions, beginnings matter because you want to be first out of the gate or first off the block or first down the track. You want to beat the competition. You want to get the edge. Beginnings matter when it comes to relationships. That's why first dates are so important. And Lauren, my wife, would tell you of the great impression that I made on our first date. And I'm telling you, she might tell you because I don't remember it. Um, uh, I don't know if she remembers it either. But I do remember, let me save face here real quick, um, our DTR, right? Our define the relationship where we went to a Starbucks that's not there anymore and uh, it was exam week, which fellas, just a side note, bad idea, right? Heavy, weighty conversations, don't do it during exam week. But anyway, uh, I remember that day. Uh, beginnings matter. Beginnings matter. They matter in music and in movies. They matter in shows. They matter in relationships. They matter in sports. They matter in academics. That's why here is your freshman year. You, for many of you, you want to get off to a, a great start. Yesterday when we were um, uh, when we were serving watermelon and hanging out with our dogs on campus, um, I talked to two freshmen that said, hey, we're about to walk our classes. And I thought, oh, good, good idea, because you don't want the morning of classes to think, where in the world is that building? You don't want your first impression to your professor to be, well, what had happened was, right? Uh, you, you want a better first impression than that. Beginnings matter. But how do you begin with God? How do you begin with God? Or for many of us in the room, the question is not, how do I start with God? The question is, how do I restart with God? I, I, I began once a long time ago, but between now and then, I need to figure out how to start with God. It may be that between your last Sunday at your home church when they prayed for you and the old little old ladies gave you hugs and said, you're going to do great at college, between then and now, you have royally messed things up. And it may be that it's just by the skin of your teeth and the grace of God that, that you made it to church this morning, right? And, and so, so how do you restart with God? Seven years ago, today, when we started Catalyst Church, we started with this note. We said, we don't want to tell you all of the things that you have to do to get to God. We want to help you marvel at what God has done in Christ to get to you. We don't want to tell you all of the things that you have to do to get to God. We want to help you marvel at what God has done in Christ to get to you. I want to talk to you this morning about how to marvel at Christ in all of life. How do you marvel at Christ in all of life? Because here's the deal. You're either going to marvel at Christ in all of life or you're going to dismiss him as irrelevant. 
and you're going to think he doesn't have anything to do with this part of my life. He, Jesus has nothing to do with my academics. He has nothing to do with my sexuality. He has nothing to do with my gender. He has nothing to do with my mental illness. He has nothing to do with this or that or whatever part of my life it may be. He has nothing to do with my athletics. You're either going to marvel at Christ in all of life or you're going to dismiss him. And if you dismiss him, you will marvel at something or somebody else. Everybody you know, everybody you're working with, everybody in your classes, they're all marveling at somebody. We are all worshipers. We're all worshiping something. And if you can't identify what it is or who it is you're worshiping, then the answer is probably yourself. That's the default idol of the human heart, is to worship self. And that never ends well. Friends, our goal here at Catalyst Church is to help you marvel at Christ in all of life. Our goal is to help you marvel at Christ, to help you embrace the confession that Jesus is Lord, and as a result, repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. Because you'll either embrace that confession that Jesus is Lord, and as a result, you'll repent, or you'll embrace the confession that you are Lord, and you'll expect the rest of the world to repent and orient themselves around you. And again, friends, that never ends well. So in order to answer this question, how do we marvel at Christ in all of life? We're gonna take a look at Mark's gospel, beginning in verse one, Mark's gospel. Now, Mark wrote his gospel it is uh, tradition tells us that Mark was close friends with the apostle Peter. So Peter told Mark what was going on and Mark wrote it down. Um, it is often, Mark's gospel is referred to as the ESPN Sports Center version of the gospels, right? Four different gospels, four different accounts of Jesus' life. They're all coming at it from a different angle. Mark is action oriented. It's like the top 10 moments on ESPN. It's the red zone to the NFL, right? He's keeping the momentum going. So we're gonna see three principles here for how to marvel at Christ in all of life. The first is this. Recognize that Jesus is Lord. Recognize that Jesus is Lord. In Mark's setting, people lived by the confession that Caesar was Lord. Mark wrote to people that were in and around the Roman Empire and citizens in the Roman Empire were identified by this great confession. Caesar is Lord. They would say that you were welcome to believe that Jesus was divine. You could believe whatever you wanted to about Jesus as long as you mix that with the cultural confession that Caesar is Lord. And so when Christians in Rome uh, in the first century, when they were killed, they weren't killed because of what they believed about Jesus. They were killed because of what they refused to believe about Caesar. Now, this is culturally true today, and it's not hard to see it. Right? And I, my expectation is it's going to get harder to be a Christian. I think your generation, and let's just pause for a moment of silence, y'all, because I just referred to college students as your generation, which means I'm an old guy. It's just a moment of sweet prayer right now. Come, Lord Jesus. Uh, help, right? I, I, think it's gonna, I think it's gonna get harder. I think social, socially it's gonna get harder to, to, to be a Christian. But what we see is, is, is culture says, you can believe whatever you want about Jesus. You are absolutely welcome to hold to that confession. We affirm it, go for it. As long as you're willing to mix that confession with culture's confession. You're welcome to believe whatever you want about Jesus as long as you can mix it 
as long as you can mix it with the confession of culture that we're all lords at the end of the day, Mark highlights the identity of Christ in such a way that it puts all other identities in submission. Yours, mine, and Caesar. So if you're going to marvel at Christ in all of life, the first thing you have to do is recognize that Jesus is Lord, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark isn't just telling a story. He's driving home a point, the unmatched identity of Jesus. He wants you to marvel at Christ. So let me just hit time out and let me ask the question, who is Jesus? Who has he been thus far in your life? He may have been the guy that your church rallied around. He may have been a great moral teacher. He may have been nobody. I met a student at CNU last year that said, you know, I've never been to a church, never been to a Bible study, never owned a a Bible, never really thought much about Jesus. Maybe that's you. Who is Jesus? There are people in your residence halls who will go their whole collegiate career and never think deeply about that question. So what about you? Where are you at this morning when it comes to Jesus? Is he Lord? Is he the son of God? Is he who he said he is? Or is it just a good idea? Mark gives Jesus this title, the son of God. Now that concept of sonship sonship was first used to describe Israel all the way back in Exodus when God said, I'm gonna deliver Israel my firstborn son. But as you follow the Old Testament, you realize that Israel was a disobedient son. They weren't a good son. And so when Mark says, this is Jesus, the son of God, his readers would have started to ask the question, what kind of son is he going to be? Is he going to be a good son, an obedient son, or is he going to be disobedient like Jesus? Mark is showing us who this Jesus is. The son of God is Mark's load-bearing Christological title. It's interesting that throughout Mark's gospel, that title is only used by God at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And demons who say, what do you want with us, Jesus, the son of God? It's not until the cross that human lips utter that phrase, this is the son of God. And even then at the cross, it was a Roman guard, a Roman centurion who nobody ever thought this guy would become a Christian who said, surely this man was the son of God. So when Mark uses that title, he's driving home a point. Jesus is Lord. Mark is deeply concerned with making Christ known. You're going to study a lot of things over the next four years, some of them more deeply than others, but none more important than the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christian, give yourself to this, to knowing Christ. Give yourself to opening up your Bible, to digging deeply. Dig into the word and figure out who Jesus is. Vody Bauckham, um, a modern, um, modern pastor, gives the condemning remark when he says the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. Is that you? The modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. I want to repent of my lack of knowing Jesus and give myself day in and day out again to knowing Christ because you won't marvel at a Christ you don't know. You will never marvel at a Christ you don't know. Are you in awe of Jesus? 
So John goes on, and in verses 2 through 8, he shows John the Baptist, the last of the pre-Christ prophets, preparing the way for Jesus. And then in verses 9 through 11, the baptism of Jesus and the divine declaration, this is my beloved son. In verses 12 through 14, we see the temptation of Jesus portraying Christ as the new and the obedient Israel. This is our goal, that you would know Christ. If you're going to marvel at Christ in all of life, the first thing you have to do is recognize that Jesus is Lord. Now, the second thing you have to do is this. You must repent because Jesus is Lord and you are not. Jesus is Lord and you are not. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And he's saying, this is what Jesus is saying. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, don't miss the context here. Jesus is tempted and John is arrested. That's the setting that the gospel is proclaimed in. Friends, the gospel is proclaimed and known in adversity and in suffering, not in ease. John was arrested, Jesus is tempted, and the gospel is proclaimed. And he proclaims the gospel of God, this good news that comes from God, this good news about Jesus. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, would say that this is the gospel. He would summarize it, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, and that he appeared to many. These are demands. These are, these are facts that demand a response. And Jesus says that the response is that we would repent which is a word that means to turn. The word literally means to turn. It's a changing of the heart's affections and the mind's attentions from whatever else it was caught on to Jesus. It means to turn. Now, friends, we, repentance often gets a bad rap, like it's a bad word. But here's the deal. When you realize you're running in the wrong direction, it's never a bad idea to stop and turn around. Right? It's not rocket science. When you realize that you're going the wrong direction, it's never a bad idea to stop and to turn around. Jesus is saying a new kingdom has come. Repent. Repent. Now, repentance is not merely a matter of I did wrong, so I must do better. But deeper, I believed wrong. I must believe better. Our, our uh, oldest son, Aiden, is jumping into a brand new education system this year, and we're learning as we go as parents. Y'all, let me tell you, parenting is scary, all right? Uh, just a heads up. It's great and fun and scary. Um, and so we're figuring out this, this brand new um, education system, and it's called Scole. And the idea, as, I, as I'm, I'm learning, as I sat through the, um, the, the introduction, is it's a right ordering. It's a right ordering of our loves and our lives. It's a right ordering of our loves and our lives. Friends, repentance is when we realize that our loves and our lives are out of line. And we say, oh, I've been loving that more than I ought. And I've been loving that less than I ought. I've been loving attention and affection and my own glory more than I ought. And I've been loving Jesus's glory less than I ought. And so repentance is saying, let me stop. Let me turn that around. Let me love Christ as I ought. Let me love Christ as I ought. Let me order my loves and my life correctly. Jesus says, repent 
and believe. Now, it's important that we understand that repentance and faith are always two sides to the same coin. So he's talking about, uh, he's talking about two things that always go together. In the Bible, where one is mentioned, the other is assumed. Jesus never talks about repentance without calling us to believe, and he never calls us to believe without talking about repentance. Right? There, there are two sides of the same coin. Where one is mentioned, the other is assumed. And repentance is not merely the way into the kingdom. It is the way of the kingdom. It is the first and every step of kingdom life is the way of repentance. So Christian, this morning, do you have a posture of repentance? Do you have a posture of repentance? We must, if we're gonna marvel at Christ, we must repent for Jesus is Lord and we are not. That leads us to our third and final point. And that is that we must rejoice that Jesus is Lord and you are not. Rejoice that Jesus is Lord and you are not. So three points, and they are alliterated so you know we're Southern Baptists, right? right? You want to recognize that Jesus is Lord. We want to get it. We want the light bulb to go off and say, oh, man, Jesus is far better than I thought he was. Around here, sometimes we'll refer to the three cheer-ups. Cheer-up, you are far worse than you think you are. You thought you were a sinner. You have no idea how bad a sinner you are. Cheer-up, it is far worse than you think you are. You are far worse than you. Cheer up. Jesus is far bigger than you think he is. He is far bigger. I, I know you think he's a big savior. We're gonna sing really big songs. He is far bigger than you think he is. And cheer up. God is better than you could ever imagine. He's better than you could ever imagine. And so we want to recognize that Jesus is Lord. We want to repent for Jesus is Lord, and we are not. We want to rejoice that Jesus is Lord, and you are not. This is good news. That word gospel literally means good news. So when Jesus says he's preaching the gospel, he is bringing good news. The angel's pronouncement when they announced the birth of the, uh, the Christ child said, I bring you good news that brings great joy to all people. I was in a, a leadership meeting this weekend, uh, this past week in Williamsburg with a gr group of church leaders from all over our state. And uh, one of the leaders asked the question, he said, how would you finish this sentence? Church teams in 2020 need to be more blank. Church teams in 2020 need to be more blank. And people were jumping in. They were saying they need to be more truth-oriented. And yes, and amen, we need to be truth-oriented. And they said we need to be more about disciple-making. And yes, and amen, we need to be more about disciple-making. And we need to do this, and we need to do that. And, and I, didn't, I didn't say anything because I was kind of the young guy in the room and the inexperienced guy in the room, so I was just sitting and listening, right? But I thought, you know, I think church teams need to be more joyful. More joyful. It is, after all, good news that brings great joy to all people. Our gospel is not bad news. We're not a church that's centered on bad news. We have good news. You've perhaps heard the story of the little boy that goes to the uh, zoo, and he sees the long-faced donkey, right? That's my best long-faced donkey right there. That's all I got, all right? And he says, Mom, that donkey must be a Baptist. His mom says, What are you talking about? He said, because he looks as miserable as granddaddy, and granddaddy's a Baptist, right? Why is it so often that our understanding of Christianity leads us to frown and not to joy? We have good news that brings great joy to all people. The gospel is good news. Rejoice that Jesus is Lord and you are not. Have you met you? I've met some of you. I wouldn't want you to be Lord, right? 
I am eternally glad that Jesus is Lord. The gospel is good news. It's a military term at root. It announces the defeat of one king and the ascent to the throne of another. You see this in 2 Samuel 4 when the Philistines sent messengers or evangelists, as they were called, declaring the good news of Saul's death. Friends, we have the good news. Not of a mighty king, not of a political pundit, but of God himself. God is on the throne. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Rightly order your loves and your lives with this good news. And repent. There is more joy on the other side of repentance than on this side of disobedience. There is more joy on the other side of repentance than on this side of disobedience. I know some of you are going to jump into PLP, the President's Leadership Program, and you're going to learn a bunch of leadership lessons. And one of the leadership lessons that I hope you learn is this. People will not change until the pain of change becomes less than the pain of staying the same. Okay? People will not change. It doesn't matter if it's an organization or you're trying to get somebody to clean up their socks. People will not change until the pain of change becomes less than the pain of staying the same. Change always brings pain. It's always hard to change something, but it's also hard to stay the same, right? Both have consequences, and you will not, right? You will not change until you understand that the pain of change becomes less than the pain of staying the same. You won't repent until you understand that the pain of repentance is less than the pain of remaining in that sin, that there is more joy on the other side of repentance than on this side of disobedience. Let me ask the question this way. Is God good? Is he good? I mean, deeply and truly good. If he is, then it is not bad news to turn around and start following him. If God is good, then it is not bad news to say, repent of your own way and go God's way. The psalmist said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Would you rather have one day with God than a thousand elsewhere? Is God good? We don't want to tell you all of the things that you have to do to get to God. We want to help you marvel at what God has done in Christ to get to you. We want you to know that God, God is unchangeably and unwaveringly good. And he has been good to us most of all in the giving of his son. Friends, beginnings matter, but how you finish is more important than how you began. So where are you at today? When it comes to Jesus, and it comes to the, when it comes to the gospel, where are you at today? Friends, Jesus invites each and every one of us, no matter where we came from, to finish well, to repent and believe the gospel. Friends, in just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. If you're new to Catalyst or perhaps you're new to the idea of Christianity, this is a meal that we celebrate every week out of obedience to Jesus. It's a meal in which we eat a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ and in which we drink a cup of juice that represents the blood of Christ. Paul says that in celebrating this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
We proclaim the Lord's death because we believe that it is the means to life. On the cross, Jesus died to pay the penalty of my sin and of yours. And by faith, by trusting in him, my sin is counted to him and his righteousness before God is counted to me. Luther called it the great exchange. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know you're among friends. I am glad you're here. I would love to buy you coffee at Einstein's and hear your story and where you're at. But if you're not a Christian, this meal is not for you. You are not trusting Christ and you do not enjoy the benefits of trusting Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, but today is the day for you. You want to begin this semester, this week, this day, by trusting in Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. It's helpful to think of it this way. Every heart has a throne. Every heart has a throne. But there's only room on that throne for one person. And it's either you or it's Jesus. It's never both. Repentance is simply the act of getting off the throne and saying, Jesus, it's all yours. It always was and it always will be. But for Jesus to get on the throne, friends, you must repent, you must turn, you must get off the throne. So if that's you this morning, you simply say to Jesus, here I am with all my faults and all my failures, with all of my sins stacked up against me, but I'm believing that you're a bigger savior than I am a sinner all day long and I'm trusting in you. Friends, if that's you, if that's your confession, then the table is wide open. I'm gonna invite you in just a moment to come forward and receive the elements and take them back to your seat, and then once we're all seated, we will partake together. We have a gluten-free option for our gluten-free brothers and sisters that need that. But friends, the table is open. You come and let us by faith feast on Christ together. Let me pray for us, and then the table will be open. Oh, great God. We want to celebrate your gospel well. We want to marvel not at ourselves, but at Christ, our great Savior. So this morning, we come again by faith. We come by repentance, turning from our sin, turning from our rebellion against you, and we lay down our arms. God, we cannot contend with your grace, and why would we want to? We could not contend with the love that seeks us and has sought us in Christ. And why would we want to? So God, I pray that this meal this morning may for some be a meal of repentance and a meal of great faith that we might celebrate well the good news that brings great joy to all people. God, it's in Jesus' precious and powerful name that we pray. Amen.